are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Hey, good morning, church. I'm not Buster, but I'm going to read for him this morning. So good to be with you. Our reading this morning is from Micah 5, verses 1 to 5. A promised ruler from Bethlehem. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times." Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth." And he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning, church. That lovely uh, South African accent is my brother-in-law, Richard. Um, So wanted him to read this morning. Um, Love this brother. He is a pastor in Johannesburg, uh, South Africa. Um, excited to be with you, excited to look at Micah chapter 5 this morning. It's going to be a great morning together. It's our second week of Advent. We got actually had a great uh, time uh, yesterday evening. I know many of you, we saw you out at Crestwood Park for Christmas in the Park last night as we um, didn't really feel much like Christmas as we gathered around the, the roaring fire in our short sleeve shirts. Um, but it was a great, great time. And uh, what was particularly uh, just uh, impactful for me was just uh, looking around from time to time and noticing many of you in conversation with friends and neighbors and folks from our community. Just wanted to commend you on that, church. A few years ago, I read a, a New York Times article called The Torture of Waiting. It's about an airport in Houston. I'm going to read an excerpt for you. Some years ago, executives at a Houston airport faced a troubling customer relations issue. Passengers were lodging an inordinate number of complaints about long waits at the baggage claim. In response, the executives increased the number of baggage handlers working that shift. The plan worked. The average wait fell to just eight minutes, well within industry benchmarks. But the complaints persisted. Puzzled, the airport executives undertook a more careful on-site analysis. They found that it took passengers just one minute to walk from their arrival gates to the baggage claim and seven more minutes to get their bags. So roughly 88% of their time, in other words, was spent standing around waiting for their bags. So the airport decided on a new approach. Instead of reducing wait times, it moved the arrival gates away from the main terminal and routed the bags to the outermost carousel. So passengers now had to walk six times longer to get their bags. 
but their bags were ready at the baggage claim when they arrived there. The result? Customer complaints dropped to near zero. Walked six times longer. We hate waiting, don't we? Even just for a little bit. We want to pull that phone out in a grocery line or whenever we're in line somewhere, we can't stand waiting. The psychology of waiting is a really interesting thing. Because of this reality for us in, in 2021, it's really difficult for us at times, I think, to connect with the long-term generational waiting and longing of saints in the Old Testament. Waiting for this promised Messiah. It's hard for us to relate to this, but it's a good exercise for us. Part of preparing our hearts this time of year is considering what that must have been like, that we can barely stand waiting seven minutes for our bags, much less 700 years for the coming Messiah, like the people who heard Micah's words. But it's good for us. And so the goal of this morning, church, the goal of this sermon is for us to consider the advent of Christ in a way that makes us marvel at God's power and treasure the precious gift of Jesus. I'm going to say it one more time. The goal, what we're going for this morning over the next few minutes, is to consider the advent of Christ in a way that causes us to marvel at God's power and treasure the precious gift of Jesus. And so I want you to picture yourself, this is the way I've pictured it this week, you're walking along on a sidewalk and you see an artist painting this, this really cool mural on the side of a building, and you're noticing these details in this mural, and you're entranced by this. But then you do something, you, you walk across the street to the other side, and then at that point you can see the, the whole finished masterpiece, and then it's even more breathtaking because the details that you noticed, you see how they connect. And it's a massive work of art. I want you to put that in your mind's eye as we work through this text this morning. So we're going to notice four things from this text. And the goal of drawing these things out is just to produce worship. It's to produce gratitude. It cause us to stand in awe of this God that we serve. To kindle our affections towards Christ. So maybe you're a person here. Maybe you're really type A. Maybe you need a, like an action item in each sermon. You need to be told, like, here's what I do. Here's our collective action item this morning, church. It's to marvel at God and adore Christ. That's what we're going to do. So let's get into it for the next few minutes. Micah is, is prophesying during some troubling days in Israel. He's a contemporary, just for context, he's a contemporary of Isaiah. Prophe prophesying during that same window of time. This is around 700 B.C. The two kingdoms have been separated they're under attack now from the Assyrians. So the Assyrians have already conquered the northern kingdom, taken those ten tribes into captivity. The southern kingdom, Judah, is being attacked. They've laid siege to the holy city there, Jerusalem. And so in verse 1 of chapter 5, Micah writes this, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. This word city of troops or this phrase city of troops is really interesting. I learned this week that really it's a play on words. It's a, it's a stinging critique. You see, um, Jerusalem still considers themselves at this point, or Israel does, as a military power, uh, as a 
force in the ancient Near East, but truth be told, their, their best days are in their rearview mirror. They would have once fancied themselves as a city filled with strong troops, but those days are long gone. And so when he calls Jerusalem the city of troops, he's not saying because of their strong military, he's saying it's a city of troops because it's surrounded by troops, not friendly ones. It's a harsh dose of reality. Look at what you've become. The holy city is under siege, but yet you still think you can defend yourselves. Maybe at one time under David's rule, the kingdom grew. You were a force. Those days are long gone. He continues, they will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. So striking someone on the cheek in the ancient Near East was just public humiliation. Enemies will strike your ruler on the cheek. Elsewhere in the book of Michael, we become aware that, that Israel's continuing to drift from the Lord, becoming increasingly selfish, proud, not humble, not merciful, not caring for others. That Israel become proud of their success, really enjoying their status. But God in His grace is saying to them and says to us at times, don't forget this is all because of me, my provision. Don't forget where your strength is. Don't forget where your power is. I'm the one who, who led you out of Israel or led you out of Egypt. I parted the sea. You walked across on dry land. I delivered you from Pharaoh. I provided manna each day to sustain you. I led you by cloud and pillar. But now, these things that you're so proud of, this military might, you're, you're finding out it can't save you. Don't trust in yourself. Look at yourself. Look at what you've become. That's the, the thrust of, of the first verse of this chapter. And it's our first point, that God is gracious to humble us when we're full of pride. Though it's uncomfortable, though it's unpleasant, it's a gracious thing for him to do. A, a father loves the son he disciplines. That though Israel has had so much blessing, they've had the law, the prophets, that even have this city where God has made his name to dwell, they've been given so much, they've become proud that they received these gifts and then kind of began acting like these were earned, that these were accolades. And so his correction for them is good here. It's a sobering reality for Israel. Brother and sister, God humbles us that he might exalt us. He corrects us that we might turn to him and know him and love him. It's for our good. So if there are times in our lives where you feel like the Lord is, is pointing out deficiencies of character or pointing out our pride or our unbelief or our fear, that's, that's a grace. That's good news. He's working in us, helping us see our need from him. But there's this stinging rebuke in verse 1, but then comes this, this really hopeful verses that follow. So I learned this week that really the way the book of Micah is set up, it's these pairings of rebuke and hope, and they're, they're oracles of rebuke and hope, and there's seven of them throughout the book. So each time there's a rebuke, there's hope that follows. So where is the hope here for Israel? The hope is that somebody else will come, a new and different ruler, a different king, not 
like the other ones. But the catch is, and this was even difficult to some of the hearers, this person isn't going to come from Jerusalem. Not going to come from Jerusalem, which would have been a huge disappointment. A blow to their pride. Verse 2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And Ephrathah is just a, a qualifier. There's a couple of Bethlehems, and this is making sure this is, that we know this is the Bethlehem um, that, that we uh, hear about in Scripture. Uh, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient time. So your rescuer, your hope, it's not coming from the holy city that you're so proud of. It's coming from some small, lowly, off the map, nowhere town. And from that place, from Bethlehem, I'm going to change the world. So Bethlehem, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me. Will come one for me, the Lord says. See, the kings that reigned in Jerusalem were mostly not ones for the Lord, but ones for themselves, looking after themselves, using their power in selfish, indulgent ways. They were not for God. They ruled for their own advantage. So he continues, one uh, who come one for me, who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. It's an expression that means going back to the beginning, back to when the before time was measured, from eternity past. And so in the minds of the hearers, this could only mean God. This could only mean the second person of the Trinity, existent from eternity past. So put all of this together. There will be one born in Bethlehem who will rule for God that would actually be God. 700 years before Christ comes. I want to talk about this morning the significance of Bethlehem's insignificance. This is a really important piece to this text. You see, all through Scripture, God goes out of His way to, if you will, stack the deck against Himself. He does things intentionally and purposefully to demonstrate His power. He does things to remind us of our insignificance, our inability to save ourselves, to accomplish good apart from Him, reminding us how much we need Him. That's our second point this morning. I think we're going to see it clearly. God intentionally uses lowly means to accomplish His purposes so that He alone will get the glory. I'm going to say it one more time. It's kind of a long point. God intentionally uses lowly means to accomplish His purposes so that He alone will get the glory. So I started thinking of examples of this throughout Scripture this week. And I just couldn't stop. I'd be driving down the road and I'd think of another one. And I would bet that even where you sit this morning, as I start going through a couple of them, you'll think of others yourself. Where God is using lowly, ordinary, humble, simple means, intentionally and purposefully, so that He alone gets the glory. I was thinking of Gideon fighting the Midianites. Do you remember that? Gideon had 30,000 troops, Israelites, and he was still fighting this still vastly larger Midianite army, and the Lord kept reducing Gideon's number down to 300. Why? So that when the victory came, it was clear who gets the credit. 
Think about how the Lord chose to bring down the walls of Jericho, not with force, but with shouts, trumpets. He took down the fiercest warrior in the land with a young shepherd boy and a slingshot. Lowly, simple means this Messiah who finally comes is born in a manger. He grew up in this town in Galilee that nothing good came out of. He begins his ministry. He chooses fishermen, tax collectors. Why? Acts 4, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, and they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That's why. He rode into Jerusalem the last week of his life. Not triumphantly on some war horse. He rides in on a donkey. Paul says it like this. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to change the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? What's the purpose clause? What is it? So that no one may boast before him. He works for his glory. He says through Isaiah at the same time, my glory I I will not give to another. It's the way he works and the way he does it is using these, these lowly means to accomplish his purposes. And what's been really stirring for me this week is to consider that and to even consider that in, in the lineage of Christ, to consider the way in which God sovereignly acted to bring Christ, to bring the Messiah to us, but he's using ordinary people. He's using non-Jewish people. He's using marginalized people, and he's working all sorts of circumstances together. I was thinking of this Moabite woman who had been widowed named Ruth. Desperate, marginalized, powerless, gleaning leftovers from a wealthy man's field in a city that she isn't even originally from. And through this, Ruth's path is connected with this wealthy man, Boaz, who marries her. And this Moabite woman who had experienced this tragedy through these crazy circumstances becomes part of the lineage of the Messiah. It's remarkable. And I was thinking even further, I was reading that that, that one scholar just speculated, I wonder if the reason Boaz had this soft place in his heart for, uh, for Ruth is, and this, this woman on the, on the margins was because it reminded him of his mother. You see, his mother was a prostitute. Her name was Rahab. And whatever her life choices had been and whatever desperation caused her into, to go into prostitution, we know that at one point she was full of courage and faith and she hid Jewish spies in Jericho. And Rahab is mentioned alongside of, of Moses and Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11 in, the, in the, uh, the hall of faith. And so Rahab, this really um, unlikely character, mother to Boaz and, and Ruth, who later continues. Boaz and Ruth have a grandson named Jesse, we're saying about the rod of Jesse. 
One day Jesse's at his house and this prophet named Samuel shows up with anointing oil and says, God has told me that one of your sons is going to be the king. And so he puts forward his sons, the most tall, the most kingly. Samuel looks through them and says, this isn't, this isn't it. This is, this, none of these are the anointed. Who, do you have any other sons? And he says, yeah, I have one, the youngest. He's out in the field with the sheep. His name is David. Almost <clears throat> overlooked by his own father. Becomes the greatest king in Israel. So as the Assyrians are advancing around Jerusalem, this prophet Micah speaks to them and says that God will send a ruler like David. But from David's line, this ruler will be born in Bethlehem and be even greater. But Israel continues to stray, continues to decline. There's hundreds of years of silence from the Lord. How hard must that have been? Until one day, this angel appears to a young virgin girl in Nazareth of all places. And this girl is terrified of this angel. The angel says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and his name shall be called Jesus. Unlikely character. Lowly place. Simple, humble means. Incredible, right? What a masterpiece. He's weaving together to bring us the Messiah. But there's just one detail that's off, though. Did you catch it? Isn't the Messiah supposed to be born in Bethlehem? That's what the prophecy is about. God's kind of in a pickle because there's this promised child growing in the womb of a young girl who lives in Nazareth. What's he to do? Looked it up. Nazareth is not close to Bethlehem. It's a several-day journey on the back of a donkey. It's not the type of journey that any woman in her third trimester would willingly undertake. What's he to do? How, how do these pieces fit together? Is the prophet Micah just, he got it mostly right? Is he, is he a little bit off? Well, the answer comes unexpectedly from across the Mediterranean, thousands of miles away from Rome. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of lineage and David. What kind of God is that, right? Working through the decree of a pagan king in Rome to bring an expecting mother from Nazareth to Bethlehem at exactly the right time. so that there'd be no doubt on the legitimacy of the Messiah, and so that we could know we serve a powerful God that we can trust. Point number three, we can count on God 
to fulfill his promises because he is sovereign. We can count on God to fulfill his promises because he is sovereign. Look at how he's done it. We need to remember this, brothers and sisters, that every detail of our life is under his care. He sees us. He knows us. He loves us. He's working meticulously sovereign even when it does not feel like it. The details of where you live, the family you came from, where you study, where you work, who he puts in your path, the, the significant things of your life and the seemingly insignificant parts of your life, the times of joy, the times of pain, every chapter, every word, every season. He doesn't waste a thing. Consider what he says to us. Consider his power and, and his ability to follow through on this. He tells us, church, think on these things. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Jesus, we can trust him for that. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, we can trust him for that. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. We can trust him for that. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you of little faith? There's such comfort, such rest, such peace available to us in the hands of a sovereign God. That sometimes, I, my personal opinion is sometimes the uh, discussions around God's sovereignty kind of always go into the ditch of how do we work out God's sovereignty with our responsibility. And I, brother and sister, those are important things to think through. But this morning, I don't want you to miss just the beautiful comfort for the believer in the hands of a sovereign God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's look at verse 4 and 5 and, and point number 4. That there is peace available to us through Christ our shepherd. There is peace available to us through Christ our shepherd. Verse 4, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. He will stand and shepherd his flock. A shepherd leads. A shepherd protects. A shepherd nourishes. A shepherd pursues wandering sheep. And his greatness will extend. This kingdom that this ruler is bringing will have no boundaries. It's good news for us. We're a long way from where this was said. We have no boundaries to the ends of the earth, and he gathers in a people for himself, and his flock will be gathered from all sorts of strange places like Birmingham, Alabama. And his people will live secure in the hands of the good shepherd. So here's the picture of Christ. to so people who are small, 
vulnerable, yet full of pride, that their hope is that there will come a ruler and he will be their peace. And it's the person and all his benefits. You don't get the benefits without the person. It's not just a little dollop of peace on the side, right? He, he is our peace, that there is peace available to us through Christ our shepherd. It's a peace that passes understanding even. Think about our shepherd. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our soul. So the answer to Jerusalem's pride is peace from Bethlehem. Peace in a person. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he marvelous? Let's pray together. Father, help us this morning. Help us to have an accurate perspective to treasure Christ. Lord, we marvel at your goodness. Lord, we marvel at your power. Lord, it puts us in our place rightly to think of the, the thread of the story of redemption that you've been writing since Genesis chapter 3 that we looked at last week. Gathering a people from every tongue and tribe and nation for yourself. Father, you're so good to us. We're so grateful to be your children. Father, I just ask that during this season that we would in, in a fresh way consider Christ, consider the gift that he is, and treasure that, Lord. We're so grateful to you. We thank you for the gift of the Messiah, the promised ruler from Bethlehem. Father, where would we be without him, without you? You're so good to us, Lord. Be with us now. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Most of you. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.